Now, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, it is a privilege and an honour to introduce this afternoon's speaker. He is no stranger to our podium. In fact, this is his eighth time as a guest here, and it is an honour, Mr Ray, to have you. The Honourable Bob Ray has a very long and distinguished history of service to this country. Through the past three decades, he's transitioned from one leadership role to the next, and I think he is a public servant in the truest sense of the word. Whether as a member of provincial parliament, a finance critic, a premier, a chair of government committees of all sorts, a member of parliament, Mr. Ray's considerable political skill and his leadership skills have benefited the province and the country now since the 19, early 1980s, and actually before if you include his uh, political work prior to elected office. Since 2008, Mr. Ray has served the people of Toronto Centre on Parliament Hill. A gifted parliamentarian, he is, of course, much more than a politician. He is a lawyer, an advocate, a family man, an author, an officer of the Order of Canada, of the Order of Ontario, and an outdoorsman, and I, as I understand it, Rick Mercer's most famous swimming companion. <laughs> Born in Ottawa, Mr. Ray is a graduate of the University of Toronto. He was also a Rhodes Scholar, where he obtained a philosophy degree in, from Oxford in 1971. One of the many issues about which he is passionate is energy and its role in the Canadian economy. Canada, of course, is internationally recognized for our wealth of resources across the energy sector. But as Mr. Ray will explain, our country has no national strategy to develop this energy abundance in a sustainable way. Today, Mr. Ray will discuss the need for national leadership on the issue of energy and talk about what is needed to address this big issue facing Canada today. Mr. Ray, welcome back to our podium. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much, uh, Allison. It's a it's a great uh, pleasure to be uh, to be back at the Canadian Club. Uh, of course, I was here at the founding of the club uh, 116 years ago, uh, and it hasn't ch changed too much since that time. I can assure you. Uh, and I and I uh, particularly appreciate seeing so many uh, friends from different walks and parts of my life, as well as colleagues from uh, from the Parliament of Canada and those who will be back in the Parliament of Canada after 2015. Uh, as, uh, as Allison has said, the, the, what I wanted to do today was to start a, a real discussion uh, about energy and our economy, but also in so doing uh, about what kind of country are we and what kind of politics do we, do we really want to have. It's been exceptionally difficult over the last while uh, to have any kind of debate or conversation uh, about a whole lot of public policy issues uh, because immediately it descends into the world of, of slogans and, and, uh, and pure and simple uh, partisanship. And as somebody who's uh, been in public life, as Allison has kindly pointed out for uh, quite a few years now, uh, this is not new, but what is new is the fact that Anyone who puts their head over the, over the trenches is, is likely to get whacked pretty quickly. Uh, so I guess I'm doing this today because I don't have any uh, leadership ambitions, as you have by now discovered. 
much to the surprise of some people, all those ads taken out against me are just a great big colossal waste of money. Um, uh, but because I do think, uh, as the interim leader, I still have something constructive and positive that I can do to encourage a real national debate and dialogue and, and do everything I can to, to make sure that that, uh, that that happens. So we start out with a picture in our heads of our country. And uh, for those of, those of you in the audience who are of my generation, we, all remember, we grew up in, in primary school with those national film board uh, documentaries about, about the country. And we, we, we could all appreciate and see uh, the diversity of the country, its richness and the, and the richness of its resources. And so the, the fact that we are a resource-rich country is not new. When the first fishers came to the great uh, shores off uh, Newfoundland and saw that, uh, that there was an abundance of fish such as they'd never seen before in their lives, right down to today to those people who are coming to Canada and seeing that we are, uh, as the Prime Minister has described us, an energy superpower and an energy powerhouse, uh, the resources of Canada have been a huge draw uh, on attracting people to, uh, to the country. And to a great extent, it really is the story uh, of Canada. C'est l'histoire du Canada, nos ressources naturelles. Et il faut dire clairement que c'est à cause de ça que nous sommes un pays qui est si riche. C'est à cause de ça que nous sommes un pays qui attire l'investissement euh, d'ailleurs. Et ce n'est pas nouveau, c'est l'histoire du Canada. Ce n'est pas quelque chose qui vient euh, de hier, mais c'est quelque chose qui vient de, de notre histoire. Now, some people refer to this as a disease. I don't think it's a disease. I think it's an advantage. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong or anything to be ashamed of, the fact that we are a resource-rich country, the fact that today we are an oil and gas-rich country. That's really not the issue. What's at issue is what do we do with these resources? How do we develop them? How do we do it in a sustainable way? How do we ensure that the riches that accrue from it come to all parts of the country and not just to one part of the country? And how, in fact, do we ensure that those who have lived on the very margins of our society for so long, in fact, since the arrival of European settlement, how do we ensure that the First Nations, the Aboriginal people of this country, can, in fact, benefit directly from the development of our resources, rather than see them as a threat or as a further source or cause for their impoverishment. That's why when we talk about how we develop our resources, and we talk about, in particular, our energy resources in this country, we're not talking about some narrow technical issue we're actually talking about the unity of the country. And we're also talking about something else. And that's called leadership. It's a leadership that's going to be required to ensure that we develop these resources in a way that's truly and deeply sustainable, that we develop them in a way that will lead to a widely shared prosperity across the country, and that we develop them in a way that will ensure a greater degree of unity in the country rather than a greater degree of disunity in the country. And these things don't happen by themselves. They don't happen because 
an energy board makes a decision one way or the other. They happen because the government of the day decides to talk to Canadians directly about what it's going to take and what it's going to require to get us to a point of genuine and deep unity, a widely shared prosperity, and a common agreement and understanding that rip it and ship it is not a recipe for national success. The key is, how do we add value to the resources that we have? How do we get the maximum benefit in terms of jobs and employment? And how do we make sure that the prosperity is widely shared? It requires a national vision, and it requires an ability to talk and engage Canadians in a way, frankly, that this government simply hasn't been able to do. Comment créer une prospérité qui est largement partagée à travers le pays? Comment assurer que la population autochtone ne sera plus marginalisée? Qui vont, effectivement, ils vont, vont pouvoir prendre avantage des ressources, avantage des richesses, et que ces richesses seront vraiment partagées d'une façon claire et nette et intelligente. Et comment assurer que nos ressources naturelles et l'énergie que nous possédons ensemble sera une source d'unité pour le pays et non pas une source de division? Et ça exige un esprit de leadership qui viendra du gouvernement fédéral, parce que ça c'est le, le travail d'un gouvernement fédéral, mais aussi ça exige un sens de participation directe de la part de toute la population. You know, I was in, uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. I was in BC uh, over the weekend and took uh, a day to go up uh, to Kitimat, which is uh, a place that you'll be hearing a lot more about over the next uh, few months and years, uh, and uh, spoke as well in, in, in Prince George. In the course of, of visiting those two communities, I spent time talking to some Aboriginal leaders. And the bad news, of course, is that there's a lot of frustration. I would say even that there's anger. There's anger and frustration at the sense of being excluded, of not being part of the solution, of not being taken seriously, of not being engaged. And I think the, the National Chief, uh, Sean Atlio, had something to say about that just this week uh, in, a, in a letter that he apparently wrote to Prime Minister Harper. I think it's a frustration we have to listen to as Canadians and understand. The good news that I heard was, was quite different, and, and frankly, different than I think a lot of Canadians are hearing. When I met with the Heisla chief just outside Kitimat, which is where there's supposed to be eventually a large LNG port uh, and a natural gas pipeline coming over the, coming over the, the mountains to, uh, to the coast, uh, and the, the development of this uh, site is uh, a source of tremendous potential for, for the entire uh, region, uh, I didn't hear opposition to the LNG proposal. I heard strong support. I heard advocacy. Uh, I heard a deep interest in becoming part of its development. I heard a deep commitment to getting jobs. And him saying to me, look, we, we want to be the pipeline inspectors. We want our people to have jobs on the water. We want our people to be the harbor masters that are being trained to, 
to take advantage of this great potential of our resource. We want to engage with the Canadian people and with the Canadian government about how we can in fact create a genuine and deep uh, partnership. So I think the, uh, the, the image that some people have in their heads that somehow the Aboriginal leadership of the country is simply opposed to, to development or is opposed to uh, having uh, our, these, these resources being developed and transformed in the, in the way that they need to be, that, that sense is a, is a big mistake, is a big misnomer, is a big misunderstanding. But as I get a little older, I think one of the things that you realize in, in public and political life is that what people really want is respect. To be an effective leader, you have to understand that every member of your caucus wants a little respect. And every member of parliament wants a little respect. And why would you assume that the Aboriginal people of this country are any different? Why would you assume that what they're, what they're not looking for is respect when it's so clearly that is what is required? And yes, that respect has to take real and constitutional form. I've argued strongly about the need for us to go further in entrenching the right to self-government in our Constitution. Worked hard on it in the Charlottetown Accord many, many years ago. But we don't have to go back to a constitutional table to understand that the Supreme Court of Canada has told us that we have, as a federal government, a duty to consult. And what was interesting to me is that the person who has put forward this view most strongly most recently is the vice chairman of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce who also was a Minister of Energy and also was a Minister of Aboriginal Affairs in Mr. Harper's government. I'm speaking of Jim Prentice. And Jim Prentice pointed out three weeks ago in a speech that he gave in Calgary where he said, the duty to consult cannot be subcontracted to an energy board and a duty to consult has to belong to the federal government. And he pointed out that unless that duty is taken seriously and is followed by a real sense of partnership, there are many projects that people have in their heads that they want to go ahead, and they will not go ahead. And they will not go ahead because the Aboriginal people have not been brought in to be part of the solution and part of the answer. So we often see the Aboriginal issue as being something, oh, we'll get to that later on. Souvent nous pensons que nous pouvons le faire plus tard. Mais écoutez, c'est la province du Québec qui nous a montré le chemin en se rendant compte qu'il n'y aurait pas de projet au nord du Québec sans l'appui, sans la participation directe de la population autochtone. C'est la province du Québec qui a signé les accords avec les Cris et les Inuits du Nord, ce qui a créé l'opportunité pour changer, pour transformer l'économie du nord du Québec. Ils l'ont compris, ils l'ont fait. Effectivement, nous avons besoin d'un gouvernement fédéral qui aussi a appris cette leçon si primordiale, si fondamentale. The second thing we need to do is, is understand that the policy cannot just be based on talking about development. The national vision that we have has to be a vision that's based on the principle of sustainability. That, in effect, we are borrowing these resources from future generations. And that if we do not maximize the value that we get from these resources, we are, in fact, not taking advantage of what we have. 
If we ship raw logs, we're not taking advantage of our forestry industry. If we ship bitumen without its being upgraded, we're not taking full advantage of the value that's in the ground. And yes, when you come to the oil sands, you have to recognize that there's a special responsibility to make that development sustainable, to make that development at a human pace, at a human rhythm, in a way that responds to the needs of communities. If we fail to do that, then we will face the same challenge that we faced in the forestry industry in the 80s and 90s, where markets were closed to our products because we did not take the sustainability lesson seriously enough. And I'm proud to say that the Canadian forestry industry has transformed itself into a world leader in terms of the environment, to a world leader in terms of its harvesting practices, so that our products are not blocked outside the country. And we have to take this seriously. We can't just pretend it's a question of messaging or it's a matter of improving our marketing techniques. It's not about messaging or marketing. It's about creating the policies that will actually make how we produce a world leader in sustainability. And that's a challenge that we must meet. I also want to say today to everyone in this room that we have to move the discussion along with respect to this question of carbon pricing. Do you know who's providing the leadership today on carbon pricing? Province of British Columbia. And the province of Alberta. They're not afraid to talk about carbon pricing. They're not afraid to use market mechanisms to force innovation and more conservation. They're not afraid to send the right messages to markets. They've done that. They've moved ahead of the game. The conference of CEOs under the leadership of John Manley has said exactly the same thing. We have to set a, send a signal to the markets about the price of carbon going forward, and we have to do it in a way that once again will force producers and force the industry to become more innovative. And that's a more effective way to do it than and this is really ironic coming from a so-called conservative government, the kind of centralized command and control regulatory approach which now seems to be the vogue in Ottawa. Now, you and I both know our shared experiences as a country in trying to have a national conversation on this question of carbon taxing or cap-and-trade, either technique, either method of trying to create a signal to the markets about price. But I'm here to tell you that if we don't send a signal to the markets about price, the market won't take us seriously when it comes to conservation, and the market won't take us seriously when it comes to greening the economy, and the world won't take us seriously when it comes to those things. What's more, the industry itself is asking for this. Talk to a CEO of any major energy company in Canada, and they will tell you, we need to know what prices are going to be and what government policies are going to be in order to allow us to make and justify the investments to our shareholders that we know we have to make. Two projects right now on carbon capture, two separate major projects on carbon capture 
have been put on hold by two major companies for the simple reason that there is no signal to the market. That's wrong. But I know full well that anyone who steps up to the plate and says, this is something we have to do, and at the same time provide for tax cuts to lower and middle income people, provide for real cuts in income taxes, make sure that regions that are badly affected are helped and not hurt, it's quite possible to do it, that anyone who suggests it will immediately have their head blown off. But having had my head blown off many times, <laughs> I don't mind. What I do mind is the absence of national leadership. What I do mind is the fact that the provinces are getting together and getting together again at the end of this month, they're going to be talking about the need for a national energy strategy. They themselves are taking steps to move forward. The province of Ontario, the province of Manitoba, province of Nova Scotia, they all want to move forward. Quebec wants to move forward. It already is ahead of, of, of the federal government when it comes to setting targets and getting there and sending signals to market. So the federal government is hiding under its chair while that conference is going on, and the federal government is hiding under its chair when the national industry and the CEOs of this country are looking for leadership, and they don't find it. Why, why would provinces be squabbling between Alberta and British Columbia? I'll tell you why. Because there's no leadership. S'il n'y a pas de leadership fédéral, nous savons très bien les conséquences. Les conséquences seront encore des batailles entre les provinces, des batailles inutiles qui ne vont pas aider l'unité nationale, qui ne vont pas aider la situation, mais qui sont inévitables dans l'absence du leadership fédéral. Finally, before I close, I want to say a word to all of you about foreign investment. I think we have to understand as a country that without foreign investment, <coughs> broadly speaking, uh, we wouldn't have the kind of wealth and we wouldn't be doing as well as we're doing as a, as a country. That's a simple reality. We're a country whose resources and whose entire economy attracts investment. It attracts people worldwide who are looking for opportunities to, to put their money into uh, and to invest. Now, we've had this debate as, as a country over the years. We've seen some of the benefits and also some of the risks. And I think today we need to have from the federal government, before it makes a decision on Nexen, we need to have a clear statement from the federal government with respect to what are the rules at play and how are they going to work. Interestingly enough, other governments are doing this. You go to Australia, for example, they have a clearly set out policy they talked very clearly about the national benefit to the economy of Australia. They promised people that their investments will be considered carefully, but according to a clear set of guidelines, with some industries set out as being extremely sensitive, others as being less so. All those things set out in a, in a regulatory form, which is crystal clear and categorical, and we don't have that. We have companies that are applying that get refused and they don't actually know why it was refused. We now have a situation where the government has asked twice for an extension and has not told us why they need an extension, nor have they told us what criteria they're going to apply to the next end investment. And, you know, there will always be those people who will simply be opposed to 
the investment by a Chinese uh, company. And there will also be some people who are going to always be opposed to investment wherever it comes from. But that isn't going to drive our country to prosperity. What is going to drive us to prosperity is a willingness to have clear rules and then to apply those rules and explain to the country why what is being done is being done. You can also set out the criteria quite clearly. What, how much activity is going to remain in the country? How much control will Canadians have at the management level? How much commitment is the new company making to Canadian innovation, to Canadian R&D, to support for our universities, to support for other charitable activities and other features of corporate responsibility? What is the commitment to clearly following Canadian laws, which is just a basic, <laughs> basic requirement that one would establish? How much how, much, how many shares are Canadians going to be able to buy on the market? Is the company willing to list on the Toronto Stock Exchange? Can we have the same degree of transparency applied to that investment as we would have to any investment which would be made by a Canadian or other companies? So it's not a matter of saying I'm for it, I'm against it. It's a matter of saying here are the rules of the game and here are the negotiations which need to happen. But again, in the spirit of saying things which not everybody always wants to hear, let me make it very clear. There is no room for any xenophobia in how we address the question of Chinese investment, any more than we would apply that to any other investment. There have to be rules in place. The rules in place have to be followed. And one other factor has to be discussed very directly with any company that is partly owned or mainly owned or principally owned by the Chinese government. And that is this. Are we going to have the same access to your market that you have to ours? I've done a lot of business in China. I'm not afraid. I'm a former member of the Canada-China Business Council. As a lawyer at Goodman's, I spent a great deal of time traveling between China and Hong Kong and Canada. And I've done deals in China. I've negotiated with, with uh, the Chinese government. And I know, <laughs> I know what it's like. I know what it's about. And the critical thing for us to realize is that there are many sectors of the Chinese economy which are off-grounds for Canadian investment. We're not allowed to invest in geographical parts of the country. We're not allowed to invest in certain sectors. So we need to have a candid discussion with the government of China, as well as with the company that's investing, and saying, well, let me make this, let me try to understand the deal that you're proposing here. You want to be able to get access to a very sensitive and important sector of the Canadian market, that is to say, our oil sands development, what is our access to the Chinese energy sector? And that's, again, it's not a matter of saying we're, we're for it or we're against it, it's open, open sesame or it's closed to everything. It's a matter of having a much more practical, common sense view of how we're going to do business together. And that's the spirit with which we have to get into this conversation. But I find it ironic that having ignored China for the first several years of his mandate, having said it was a bad place that no one, no one should, should, should go to, Mr. Harper has suddenly discovered China. The conservatives have discovered Asia. Marco Polo discovered it in 1300. It's been there for a long time. And our, our development of our relationship here has to be one that's genuinely mature, thoughtful, based on a sense of mutual self-interest, and using the leverage of a negotiation, if you can, to get the best possible deal for Canada. That's the nature of how we do, how we do this business. It's not a matter of saying we're opposed to all foreign investment or foreign investment is bad. 
So we now have the ludicrous proposition that Mr. Mulcair thinks apparently thinks that having American ownership of the oil sands is okay, but having the Chinese participate in one very small part of it is a bad thing. It's, you've got to look at this in a much more practical and thoughtful way. And what's interesting is Canadians actually get this picture. Les Canadiens comprennent très bien qu'une bataille des slogans va pas marcher, que nous ne pouvons pas avoir du progrès comme pays si nous pensons que c'est seulement en slogan, c'est seulement en attaquant l'opposition qu'on va trouver des solutions. Parce que c'est pas comme ça qu'on fait du progrès, ni dans la politique, ni dans la vie. Et c'est pourquoi je pense que, comme libéraux, nous devons être fiers de l'histoire que nous avons comme des gens qui ont bien géré l'économie de ce pays. Et nous devons parler aux Canadiens de l'importance de ces questions de gestion, ces questions de comment assurer que le développement sera durable, sera, va respecter notre souveraineté, va respecter la réalité de la mondialisation de l'économie et en même temps va assurer que des populations qui n'ont pas eu l'avantage canadien depuis, depuis des décennies, maintenant, ils auront l'opportunité de vraiment participer dans l'avenir du Canada. And so, as, a, as somebody who believes strongly that we should be proud of what we've achieved together as a country, proud of what the kind of economic management that Mr. Martin and Mr. Kretchen provided to the Canadian economy over the last while. We need to see once again a government in place that is going to provide a real and deep leadership to this country on a question that is critical to the future of Canada, to our future credibility when it comes to the environment, when it comes to sustainability, when it comes to human rights, and that is going to speak as well to the need for us to create new partnerships that will always deepen and broaden the prosperity that we can create. It's not just a matter of fighting slogans. It's not a matter of say, talking about uh, the carbon tax or talking about the Dutch disease or whatever basis upon which you want to throw insults back and forth in the House of Commons or on the airwaves. It's a matter of understanding that Canadians get it. Canadians want to develop our resources. We want to continue to do well in the world. We also want to be proud of our record when it comes to the environment, when it comes to innovation, when it comes to building deep and real partnerships with the most impoverished people in this country. That's how it will get done. It will get done with leadership. It will get done with a real determination for us to show the way. And I'm proud to say that our party and our caucus, Kirsty Duncan, who's here, and my friend John McKay, who's here, I'm sure there are other colleagues who are here, we're working hard on these and other issues each and every day. And we are determined to provide this kind of leadership to the people of Canada because we think they deserve it. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Mr. Ray. Um, my name is Howard Brown, ladies and gentlemen, and I've a director of the Canadian Club that's been given the indeed honor today to thank our guest speaker, and it is truly an honor because I've admired Mr. Ray's work for over 30 years when I first met him as a young MP arriving in Ottawa in 1978. And it's quite easy to see why Bob Ray has been voted best orator many times by Maclean's magazine. They say when people arrive in Ottawa, they want to see one guy speak, and we've been privileged to hear him, and of course the Canadian Club's had the privilege of having him speak eight times at this podium. Mr. Ray, you've been a mainstay of our country's political landscape for many, many years, as you say, and we owe you, all Canadians, a deep debt of gratitude for the leadership that you've shown and continue to show on important issues that affect us all, whether it's greening of our economy, the energy, national energy policy, whether it's foreign investment, you've looked at all of them today. Your passion of purpose has always driven you to fight for worthy causes, locally, nationally, internationally. Our nation's energy sector clearly has a strong supporter and advocate in you in showing your understanding of the energy issues and sustainability. As you rightly point out, it behooves Canada to assert its leadership, and you've mentioned that many times, its leadership in the critical area by developing a strong and definitive national energy strategy. Mr. Ray, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto and all Canadians, we want to thank you, give you our sincere thanks for your generosity of time today, the energy, the wisdom, the traits you've offered us so many times over. I don't know if I'll get a chance to thank you again, but on behalf of all of us, Mr. Ray, keep up the great work. We look forward to many future years of great work for Canada. Thank you very much. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ray. It's an incredible privilege to be a part of the Canadian Club, and particularly this year um, as president, because I get to spend many lunches hearing from such fascinating people. Um, earlier this year, we hosted uh, Lloyd Robertson, the recipient of our Lifetime Achievement Award after 60 years in broadcasting. And he said uh, that the Canadian Club was Canada's podium of eloquence. And Mr. Ray, thank you for uh, proving Mr. Robertson right today. I would also like to thank again uh, the, the Dominion for being here and for your support and for making today possible. Um, now, before I uh, allow everyone to actually eat, um, I would like to take a moment uh, to tell you about a few of the, uh, of the upcoming events that we have. Um, on Monday, we will be celebrating another wonderful milestone, 100 years of the Grey Cup in Canada with CFL Commissioner Mark Cohan in conversation with Stephen Brunt. Uh, later in November, we'll host Rob McIsaac, who will talk about the role of colleges in Canada's and Ontario's changing post-secondary environment. On December 3rd, uh, the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Kathy Dunderdale, will be with us, speaking of energy as well. Um, and then later in, in uh, December, John Ruffalo from Omers and Bill Curry from Deloitte will be here to talk about how Bay Street can beat Ontario's productivity challenges and come out on top. Um, I figured that today there'd probably be at least one or two Liberals in the room. 
um, maybe more. So I thought I would uh, let you know that on December 6th, we will be hosting uh, the Ontario, all six of the candidates who are seeking the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party in a conversation hosted by TVO's Steve Pakin. So to order tickets to any or maybe even all of these Canadian Club events, you can visit our website at canadianclub.org. Um, now this formally concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. Um, we continue to be very grateful uh, to Rogers and to 680 News for their continued coverage of Canadian Club events. Now before we begin lunch, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you would, uh, please stand as you are able and join me in a toast for Canada. To Canada. Cheers, everyone. I don't have a glass. You can imagine it in my hand. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you again very much for being here and have a wonderful lunch.